Hello and welcome to this edition of Digital Cultures, the podcast from Cambridge Digital Humanities, an interdisciplinary research centre at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and today we meet the authors of Ghosts, Robots, Automatic Writing, an AI-level study guide, and take a close look at literature in the age of the large language model. I'm here today to meet Dr. Anne Alexander, the director of the learning programme at Cambridge Digital Humanities here at CRASH, and also Professor Alan Blackwell, the Professor of Interdisciplinary Design at the Department of Computer Science and Technology at the University of Cambridge. Thank you very much, both of you, for coming along to talk to me today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Anne and Alan, something that you've been collaborating on that will be released in digital form very soon is a close reading guide for students of the future at some point in the future not too far away who will be studying artificially intelligent literature can you tell me what you wanted to do with this guide really and why now is the moment to do it okay so The guide that we've written is a piece of speculative fiction. We are writing it as if somebody was taking an AI level of the future, we could say, where, you know, they are doing a class in what we're calling automatic literature, uh, where similarly to if they were studying English literature, they would be given text, they might take like a let's study guide, see different terms in the vocabulary and different approaches by the author marked up and highlighted in different colours, see some model answers, be expected to draw in the context and understand something about, to, to show their knowledge of the relationship between the author and the social and cultural context in which they were writing and how that comes through in the text. And we generated some text using GPT-2 and we marked them up according to these kind of criteria. People may have heard of uh, platform systems such as GPT-2, which was released in 2019, and its successor, GPT-3, which have been used by their developers to uh, write text in a way that seems very... uh, It it feels like a human has written it. It appears to be not only coherent and making sense in a grammatical way, but also can mimic style. So it's a way of illustrating some of the features of how these systems work, but in this slightly playful, fictionalised way, which makes you read the texts very closely as texts to take them seriously, as if they were pieces of fiction, something that you were taking as seriously as if you were studying a Jane Austen original, for example. Jane Austen was one of the authors that we used to fine-tune GPT-2 and, and generated some new Jane Austen. Although, I mean, as we'll probably get on to in the discussion, there's a big question about to what extent it is new text. I mean, Alan describes this as an automated form of plagiarism. And what we were attempting to do with the, the project was to explore these texts in, in new and different ways. So although there's been quite a bit of experimentation and discussion in public fora, the, the Guardian, for example, commissioned GPT-3 to write an article. Um, they gave a prompt and GPT-3 wrote 
uh, a column for the Guardian's comment pages, which was then edited by a human editor and which dealt with the topic of AI and autonomy and machines replacing humans and so on and so forth. And made every journalist in that newsroom burst into tears, probably. Did it do a better job than humans? Well, the editor said that uh, actually it was easier to edit the AI-generated text than some of the things they get from humans. Um, But yes, it is one of those areas where some sorts of journalism in particular, are to a certain extent being replaced by automated forms of writing, particularly things that involve summarisation rather than kind of more creative forms of writing. So just to be completely clear, GPT-2 is an example of what's called a large language model. So it's basically language in a box, isn't it? It's a computer that's been given a whole load of data and words and source texts and asked to try and replicate those texts in as close a way as possible. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Um, It's developed by Elon Musk's firm OpenAI. GPT-2 came into the world in 2019. GPT-3 came in just a year later, 2020. A lot of excitement around it and it is quite clever to some degree, but it's not yet perfect. If you could just give me a little snippet of GPT-2 Jane Austen, we'll hear straight away, I think, what its limits are. Yes, okay. So this is one of the examples from the study guide. And Jane Austen collected works were used to what is called fine-tune GPT-2. In other words, GPT-2 was trained on a huge amount of internet-based data. And then I got it, the model was then adapted by also looking at Jane Austen's collected works. So it's Jane Austen collected works plus GPT-2. It is so very grand indeed, said Edmund, smiling. It is almost amazing, quite the grandest library in the kingdom. The room is so very grand, how does it look? Good heaven, I never saw such a grand room in my life. It is furnished with so many Excelsior class objects and I always look through them with such delight. As a rule, I have not any fondness for private drawers, except that of the large drawing rooms, which I am sure there are many better specimens, which are only about 20 yards square, and look upon them with a very stupid and alarming degree of curiosity. Wait, what? Scrape a load of text off the internet and feed it into a great big box, and suddenly we get Excelsior-class literature? Run that by me again. It's a mathematical model of the English language insofar as that has been presented to this particular very powerful computer. And that has been used so that the neural network, when it's prompted to, will then write text, a bit like a souped-up predictive keyboard, a very souped-up, very expensive predictive keyboard would do, where it predicts what's the most likely next word in the sentence based on this very complex mathematical model of the text that it's already seen in inverted commas, as in the ones that have been fed into the system previously. And using that data that it's been fed it tries to replicate as closely as possible in terms of style, in terms of content, in terms of rhythm, just like any other fan trying to imitate the work of their favourite author. That's what it tries to do. 
Yes, and to be clear, the style of Jane Austen, it has got not from the basic training that it had, the kind of original pre-training, that was added by me because you can do a process which is called fine-tuning, where you can get a specific, not necessarily very large corpus of text, and add that to the model. So, you know, we did it with Jane Austen, we've done it with some Shakespeare, with some Dickens, we did it with some um, 1940s sci-fi, with some pulp fiction from American authors, pulp detective fiction, again, I think from the 1940s. All of those different styles you can experiment with, adding those to the model, so that therefore it focuses on reproducing the vocabulary, the kind of sentence structures, the content that have been included in that fine-tuning corpus. To get as close as possible to what we're calling the original. Yes, although what's going on here is... um, we're making that comparison between what we consider to be the essence of the original. I mean, so in the case of the Jane Austen, it sounds sort of Jane Austen-esque. It's perhaps better thought of as pastiche or a parody, depending on your point of view. In, In terms of narrative structure, character formation, you can't get that out of these types of systems because you need humans for that. You have to think like an author yes. rather than a machine. You have to be an author in some way, I think. Alan, you're coming in to this with a background as an AI engineer, but you've also got a PhD in psychology and you're teaching interdisciplinary design now at the Department of Computer Science. So what part of this project, this automatic literature guide, drew you in? What did you want to achieve? I think for me it was the growing realisation that artificial intelligence is more a branch of literature than a branch of science. Uh, And the reason that I say that is that as somebody who has been around AI researchers for over 30 years, the technologies have changed the things that they're able to do from time to time. But the basic motivation that drives AI researchers has always about, I'm going to imagine something that we've never seen before, and then I'm going to make it by sitting down at my computer and typing away at the keyboard, writing source code, uh, until eventually I produce something that, that other people will be entertained or stimulated by. And that just seems exactly like literature. It starts with imagination, and then there's a bunch of hard writing, and then you show it to an audience, uh, and that decides what you're going to do next. So having realised the ways in which many of my colleagues in computer science um, are doing literature but are not really spending the time to listen to critics or even to, to train their students to interpret what they see coming out of the computer, Uh, It just occurred to me that people in the English faculty, uh, in the humanities and social sciences, have got so many superior and well-established ways uh, of helping everybody who's a creator to think in more effective and actually in more creative ways, because uh, stepping outside of your preconceptions uh, actually is helpful to everybody. Who are you expecting to read this and how do you expect them to use the guide, Alan? Well, uh, we're writing it as if from the perspective of a student uh, who might be looking back in 2050 
uh, and looking at the literature that, th that they have there. So this is something that artificial intelligence researchers do a lot, is they like to talk about something that's going to be happening in 20 years' time or in 50 years' time. But quite often those predictions sound a little bit like what you might read in a science fiction book. So uh, they imagine that everything that they dreamed uh, that could come true that would have positive effects is all going to work without problem, and they sometimes don't spend very much time worrying about the negative effects. In contrast, there are people who read science fiction books and get very worried about the dystopian stories, so it's quite common for political commentators to get worried about the possibility that an all-powerful AI might be ruling the whole world and then think about what kind of political system could guard against that or how we might legislate to stop it happening. So I think we wanted to step outside uh, of those two approaches um, and instead really acknowledge that uh, we seldom really anticipate in advance what's going to happen with technology. It's often a surprise. Uh, so instead, in this project, we're focusing very much on the technologies that we already have today. And we're just thinking more carefully about the implications uh, of what those technologies mean once they get more thoroughly embedded into the kinds of institutions that we work in. So uh, one thing that is immediately apparent, actually, to people who work in a university and are responsible for writing student essays is that the texts that are produced by the software, which is quite readily available today, uh, anybody can find sites on the internet that will produce these synthetic texts, they look like pretty skilled pieces of writing. They're grammatical, the words are all spelled correctly, better than a lot of what I see coming from my students but they don't have any ideas behind them. At the moment, they're almost like producing text on autopilot. It's as if you were to switch on the predictive text on your phone and just accept the first word that it's suggested every time and then start sending those texts to your, to, to your family and friends. In your automatic literature close reading guide, you're literally giving these students of the future that you've imagined ideal answers or let's call it model answers, and you're even suggesting ways where you could get extra marks if you do a particularly good answer for certain things. But actually, the reason that this guide looks so realistic to me is because that's also how we train literature students and students of every discipline. Alan, you mentioned earlier about sometimes the automatic literature is turning out stuff better than your own students and whatever but there are certain hoops to jump through if you want to pass a university exam so has that made both of you think hang on a minute are we also training the humans wrong yes I mean I thought about that quite a lot my background isn't in the study of literature I'm a historian by training but it is meant to generate some critical reflection about how we train uh, ourselves from a very young age to reproduce things in particular ways um, that actually often stifle creativity and particularly the examination system. The study guide includes sort of highlighter marked up things and as you said model answers and I should say also the project and the study guide are co-authored with uh, my colleague Caroline Bassett who's 
Director of Cambridge Digital Humanities and actually is based in the English faculty in Cambridge and is a media scholar and Joe Walton from the University of Sussex and so they have also fed into this. Caroline for example has written a kind of mock exam paper which we're going to be including and Joe has written an essay and included some of these model answers so it was a very collaborative process and I think they also felt very much that this was a partly a critique of the existing ways in which we teach people to read texts but I should say this particular project wasn't just about sort of developing a societal or a cultural critique of these systems it was also trying to play with the idea of what you could do with them as reading them as fiction so the kind of alternate title of some of the workshops we've used was ghost fictions and so that plays with ideas about ghost writing because of course ghost writing is getting somebody else to write in the voice of another person And the idea with automatic literature was also slightly connecting with the practice of automatic writing from the Victorian era of spiritualism, where people would supposedly channel the voices of of the dead. We wanted to kind of explore these texts from that angle, partly as a way of uh, of opening up a wider discussion. Because if you think about them, instead of being so obsessed with the idea of like what's fake, what's not fake, can you produce something that is indistinguishable from the real Jane Austen or the real Charles Dickens or the real whoever? That's not the only way you could look at these technologies. You could think of them as as ways in which you could write with them. Instead of writing what the prediction is, you use it to write the opposite because then you know that the opposite is something that hasn't been predicted. You could use it in a sort of reverse adversarial way, if you like, fighting against the cliché. In her recent book, Atlas of AI, Dr Kate Crawford argues that AI is neither artificial nor intelligent. A surprising admission, perhaps, from a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. Nonetheless, most of us do have a sneaking suspicion that the box in the corner is doing some of the thinking for us, isn't it? One of the things that we found in this project is it's really hard to talk about it without falling into giving intentionality to the machine. I've got a funny example. Um, When I was writing the draft on Google Docs, this same technology is driving predictions for my writing. So I found that Google Docs kept suggesting to me that there was a mediation between humans and machines, (laughs) when actually my next word would have been humans and other humans. So you can see how the fact that these technologies that are embedded into Google Docs are reflecting the existing discourse about these technologies. They're reflecting the idea that we can't talk about them without talking about as if the machines have intention or agency themselves. So on one level, you might be tempted to say, oh, that was Google Docs coming up with some bright ideas to help you, but they're not bright ideas. They're just things that have been statistically probable for it to suggest because that's how it was programmed. Yeah, exactly. A lot of the critiques that have emerged from inside this discipline recently have focused on the huge scale of the data sets that have been used to train these systems. So, for example... 
a paper that came out quite recently, authored by Timnit Gedbrew and Emily Bender and a group of collaborators, came up with a very suggestive phrase. They talked about that these large transformer language models are stochastic parrots, that they're literally a stochastic process that mimics back to us what we want to hear. Again, there's no intention, there's no intention there. There's communication is with you know, with other people, not from the machine itself. We've been through a different way of been trying to explore some of these same problems. Nonetheless, Alan, if we can just talk about the actual design of it for a minute, there's a lot of hype and a lot of heat and a lot of media excitement about this technology. There's a lot of investment in this area. People are talking about, oh, yes, you know, automatic writing. We're going to be able to churn out tons of stuff without very little effort. Do you think that hype is justified and do we know what we're doing? I think we all find text prediction algorithms pretty useful on a day-to-day basis. So uh, I definitely like to use the predictive keyboard uh, on my mobile phone. I use one of those swipe keyboards. I know the inventor of that technique uh, and it does mean I I can write pretty fast and I don't make many spelling mistakes as long as I know how to control it. Also, like Anne, I use Google Docs, uh, and that's been trained um, on a, a large libraries of text from people who write the same sort of thing that I do, and I think it quite possibly adjusts itself according to what I've been writing earlier in the same document. And that saves me quite a bit of effort on my fingers to um, finish the sentence for me because it knows that I'm just about to use exactly the same phrase that I boringly use a dozen times a day. So I think that's a real commercial opportunity, um, and I think there are some individual labour savings and possibly on a very large scale, companies can use that. So we may see that companies that are operating online help services or the sort of chat that you might have when you're on your bank's website and you want to ask a question about how to access your account, the people who are typing at the other end of those chat conversations, obviously, uh, if they can be assisted to type faster, because they don't want to be typing exactly the same response 100 times a day. so predictive text is very helpful to them as well. It's if we start imagining something beyond predictive text uh, and if the system generates a text that nobody wanted to write. Now here is really worrying um, and I was having a bit of dystopian imagining as we were uh, finishing off the drafts of this text um, and I was having to have a conversation with the NHS. Um, Now the NHS I know would quite like to save money this way Um, And I don't mind when the NHS sends me standard guidance, a web page that's been written by some doctors and explains what I should do about my back pain. But if GPT-3 was to start randomly sending me words related to back pain, um, if anybody was to take that as medical advice, uh, we know that GPT-3 is able to say things that are grammatically sensible, but are logically completely crazy. So I think um, if people got carried away with the economic benefits of predictive text uh, and started to believe that there was some real knowledge underlying it, other than just which piece of text is it going to plagiarise and how can it do that most efficiently, I think that's the boundary that we need to be very careful about there's a relationship between vocabulary and expertise which can actually be quite dangerous I mean some of the things that we did see when GPT-3 emerged with people on on Twitter talking about how they had prompted GPT-3 to give medical diagnoses the way in which the sentences and the questions and the prompts were constructed 
have actually fed into this illusion that GPT-3 had real understanding. You can give it a, a veneer of expertise by having a specific set of vocabulary and content that then feed into the model, right? But the problem is, is that actually, if you ask the wrong kind of question, you got really disastrous answers, including potentially quite catastrophic ones. And that, I think, is where it kind of veers into not just hype, but actually claims being made that these systems have agency understanding power, you know, which then feeds into kind of commercial imperatives and it can feed into political imperatives. It can be used to mask shifts of power or taking power away from other human beings, saying that the machine is making this decision. And so it, it does feed into those kinds of problems which we know from other areas of machine learning driven systems like facial recognition. So, in other words, you're saying that GPT-3, for example, in medical terms, might be wearing the white coat and stalking through the hospital corridors with a badge on, but actually hasn't spent seven years at medical school. Absolutely. And there is a connection to the, the problems of the deep fake because we've become so accustomed to the idea that there's some kind of media that you can trust, either because you saw it live or because it's high fidelity or something. And I think it's going to take us quite a while to come to terms with the fact that these systems can produce things that, that look as though they're real or not. Um, and I, I think that goes in parallel with the, the undermining of truth and public discourse that's come from social media. It makes it so difficult to sift out the, the points where there was an idea or, or where possibly even where there's an actual person. How do you tell the difference between the one person who's trying to have a conversation with you um, and the 99 bots that are using the same words in other orders? Uh, but, but actually you have no real interest because you don't want to know what a bot thinks. certainly don't want to know what a bot thinks and right now I can just about spot one and click off its chirpy offers of help but I do want to know what happens to human creativity when the bots talk our talk a little more convincingly. Is that the moment Jane Austen fans really need to hold on to their bonnets? Well I mean that's one of the things we were kind of playing with with this project. It's a work of speculative fiction itself, which is not the normal way that people write research papers, um, which has been quite fun. And we are actually mashing together the kind of glitchiness and imperfections of these systems as they are now and, and pretending they'd still be around in 50 years, which actually, no, you're right, they wouldn't. And there are kind of implications of that for how we think about creativity but I think it's unlikely that it would somehow replace human creativity because one of the things that you really get when you read these texts is how difficult it is to produce things that really reflect something about the human condition because they're not produced in a mediated way by humans so therefore the things that would be difficult to create in this way if you thought that the the machine itself could replace that human creativity are, are, are things like um, making a coherent narrative showing how the world works in a physical sense so perhaps one of the things we're slightly thinking about in this speculative world that we've imagined is that what will be assessed in the exam is not your ability to just reproduce things to a set checklist of the right vocabulary the right 
structure but actually to produce things that are different to what was said in the past. Because that's the other thing about these networks, is that the networks, they, they are stuck in the past. They can only reproduce things that they have already seen, whereas human beings can change quite dramatically. I mean, you think about language. We just lived through a year of pandemic. You know, GPT-2, for example, on GPT-3 have no idea what social distancing is. You prompt with things that have all become part of our everyday experience, our everyday language. You know, you, you get gibberish back. So in other words, we in our lived experience in the, for want of a better word, real world, are adding vocabulary and adding experiences that so far a machine learning model couldn't catch up with just yet because it hasn't received that information yet. We haven't given it that data yet. There's always a time lag. Although one of the things, you know, that is important here is that human society, human culture doesn't change at the same speed all the time. So as I said, you can have really quite big societal cultural shifts uh, that can actually affect sometimes millions of people quite quickly that it's hard to replicate in a short period of time because you know the the model is is frozen there's no sense of interior time in the model either so that the language of the far past is all mixed up with the language of the recent past it's hard for that to make any sort of stylistic or semantic sense in text that comes out of a machine learning model It would also be dangerous to underestimate what creative humans can do whenever they're given a new technology. Uh, And I I think Autotune is an interesting example uh, of a a music technology that's kind of like predictive text because it will take your out-of-tune singing and it will correct it to follow the same harmonic theories that Johann Sebastian Bach defined. Now, of course, uh, maybe that was going to be the end uh, of human creativity because we would just have mechanical music that would follow algorithms. But what pop artists have done with Autotune instead is that they've taken their exaggerated imperfections um, and now Autotune has turned into a musical instrument in itself in a way that the creators of that algorithm never imagined. I think there's plenty of capability yet for human creatives to, to take these, these technologies and then use them in new kind of hybrids where we might see texts that are being generated live on stage. I mean, I can imagine a slam poet uh, who riffs off of GPT-3 on the other side of the stage and uses the random parrot-like pronouncements to produce a new kind of performance event. And in fact, actually, writing is a very social act. One of the points I was trying to get across in the parts of this uh, study guide that I wrote is that the automation that is going on is not just of the author. We have this model of authorship as a sort of lone act, but we tend to forget about the teachers who corrected the grammar of the budding author at school. We forget about the librarians who recommended books to the author, about the friends and the colleagues who had to read the drafts, and, you know, we're all part of this web of human interactions which produced the author's creativity. So it's a very particular model of authorship as a lone creative act as if there were no social context to it and some of what this way of reproducing text does is it automates some of the supporting cast as well that's not the normal way that these technologies are often talked about they're talked about as if they replace the author but you could think of them as also a collection of automated librarians and automated teachers and automated friends or editors or curators of collections that the person read. I think that uh, 
we're used to some of these dynamics more in other art forms where the technologies have been able to advance a little bit more quickly than they have with literature. Uh, and in particular in music, we know that modern music has got lots of computer augmentations. And so if we think of the team of people involved in creating a literary product, as Anne said, the editors, the librarians, uh, and all of the proofreaders and many other contributors, in the musical context, we, we're all used to a band of musicians on stage, each with different specialities, and we know very well that you could put a drum machine up there and it would do some of the basic functions of a drummer keeping the beat. But we also know for many of us that actually it gets rather boring listening to a band that only has a drum machine and no real drummer after a while. So I think we're going to have to get used to whether we do or don't want to read literature, which has got the literary equivalent of the drum machine, it's got some obviously mechanical elements, either because somebody wanted to save the costs, or perhaps a little bit like with auto-tune. It's a technology which behaves sufficiently differently to the way humans do that it's entertaining in its own right, and we just like it as an effect. So I think that we do have ways of thinking about the ways that machines and humans become a kind of hybrid creative product rather than a slightly more scary idea of, oh, these machines will soon be cleverer than us and won't need us at all. Alan, who would you love in the computing world to read this guide? And what would you hope it would make them think? This kind of research has been very much influenced by the investment structures uh, of the people who are able to buy the computers collect the vast amounts of data that are involved. And in fact, the, the Stochastics Parrot paper, uh, although it pointed out what technologists in the field have known for quite a long time, which is that these systems don't produce meaningful text, they just produce good imitations of it. But the paper was mostly concerned with pointing out the huge environmental costs of collecting this much data uh, and running the hundreds and thousands uh, of high-power computing systems and serv massive server farms. So I think a single run of GPT-3, they estimated, costs some millions of dollars just to run the program once. Um, that's just the cost in electricity. Uh, so along with Bitcoin, we're not properly accounting for the costs of this massive investment and things that in many respects just seem like toys. Uh, we, we enjoy speculating about them, but um, there's not proper accounting of, of what they're costing us and where they're coming from. So I think probably the people that most need to be influenced at the moment is not really any of the academics who make pronouncements either in favour of a future technology where we will love to have conversations with replacement family members who are robots because the real family members were too troublesome, or on the other side, the, um, the doom mongers who tell us that the singularity will result in an evil AI ruling the whole world while it sits in its mountain lair stroking its white cat. Neither of those people really have very much influence over the building of the systems. But most of these systems are created by extremely rich people running companies that are not really much controlled by the jurisdiction of individual countries or any kind of democratic process. So people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, um, you know, it's the computers owned by their companies that are doing all of this work. Um, and so I think those are the people that ultimately need to be thinking more deeply uh, about what they think they're trying to do. And do we actually need it? Do we need a machine to write for us? Why are we even doing this? 
In my own investigations of trying to look at AI from different perspectives, this is stepping a little bit outside of our immediate project. Okay. Um, but I recently was granted a, a year of research leave to go to Africa and ask what AI would look like if it was invented in Africa instead of uh, in rich nations, the UK or the US or Europe. Um, uh, and I spent two months in Ethiopia uh, working with uh, Ethiopian computer scientists. And one of the things that's completely obvious in that country, which has got the lowest income per head of any African country, is that they have many, many, many humans uh, who are sitting on their street corners uh, and without any source of income at the same time as there are AI researchers trying to create automated systems which would behave like humans at great expense. And many people in Ethiopia said, uh, you know, that person has got more intelligence than a laptop you can think of, but at present their lifetime income is less than what it would cost me to buy a laptop, so why don't I just employ the person instead? So it's about connection in a different way. There are many different ways of asking these questions. How much time do we have left to ask these questions? Is something that is, remember, neither artificial nor intelligent, not really emerging either, but already firmly embedded and shaping our lives? I think we definitely felt that there was an opportunity to experiment now and there's an openness to discussion including among people from computer science disciplines and the disciplines that feed into machine learning partly because the societal consequences of adopting these technologies are still up for debate although they're very rapidly being normalized they haven't yet been embedded in our everyday lives so that they're not questioned anymore so yes there's an opportunity there's a window that's open I think it's become clear that we need new economic models. I think a lot of the architecture of the internet was driven by some pretty idealistic ideas about how the world would 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 become a, a, a democratic utopia where everybody would listen to everybody and you know everyone could be equal because everybody's voice could be heard. The inventors of the internet were computer scientists, not political scientists. And I think maybe if they had spoken to more political scientists at the time, they might have realised that there hasn't been any period in history where having everybody talk to everybody else became a, a successful system of governance. So I think we're seeing the consequences playing through of some of those false ideals and the fact that the level of human engagement has become so low that it's effectively become mechanised. And I, there, there was an, a, a very old joke that on the internet nobody knows you're a dog. Um, and I think that did anticipate what's actually happened now is that on the internet it's very hard to say whether somebody's a person or not. Um, and society depends fundamentally on acknowledgement that the other members of society are also humans. If we don't know that any longer, we do have a problem. So if I were to ask you to project yourselves forward again and think that this is a kind of crunch point where we could potentially change the direction that this technology is going and we start to think about AI for social good, what does that good design look like for you having been involved in this project? I think as Alan was saying earlier, Actually, you can't disassociate these technologies from the, the, the society we live in, from the economic system that produces them, and that you can't make them 
democratic and accountable or things that actually are reparative of power injustices and discrimination bias without looking at the way that society works more fundamentally. You have to think about the whole ways in which these technologies are, are, are produced, the way in which they value massive capital investment in huge amounts of machinery and concentrate that in the hands of a very small number of people in relatively rich countries, while the impacts of those are felt by people across the globe and that people in countries, like Alan mentioned, his fieldwork in Ethiopia, but you could say across swathes of the global south, and the inequalities that you see in, in our own country, in our own society. Unless you start thinking a bit more fundamentally about how do you redistribute wealth and power, I don't think you're going to get better technologies. And that would be my answer. What about you, Alan? Well, I, I absolutely agree with what Anne says. I think maybe there's some hope here that when you're making computer systems that interact with humans or, or take part in a social context, many of the things that previously were, were kind of secrets of the elite or things that were kind of the, the hidden assumptions of our parliament that nobody would ever talk about openly, once you put, turn them into a computer system, they're written down in code. And we've seen some very successful recent demonstrations of how the, the bias of AI systems, for example, that are unable to recognize black people's faces as being humans. Um, an engineer can take that system and just do objective tests demonstrating uh, that they are racist beyond a shadow of doubt because they've been written down in software, whereas in Parliament people can argue backwards and forwards all day long using slippery language whether they are or aren't racist, but when you build a racist machine, uh, it can objectively be shown to be racist. So maybe there's, a, there's an opportunity here that where we do have injustices in our society, once they become embedded in machines, we're able to more directly uh, recognise exactly what we've done and set about correcting some of those. Dr. Anne Alexander and Professor Alan Blackwell, thank you very much indeed for joining me today to talk about these issues. And you can download a copy of Anne and Alan's AI Level Study Guide, Ghosts, Robots, Automatic Literature, from the Cambridge Digital Humanities website at cdh.cam.ac.uk forward slash ghostfictions. Cambridge Digital Humanities conducts research and teaching at the intersection between computing and culture, rethinking what the humanities could and should be in an age of big data, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Digital Cultures offers a glimpse inside the work of the centre and our shared digital future and is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. Thanks for switching on. Thank you.